0: Hey, parents, did you know your kids' money habits start as early as the second grade? Help them build budgeting and financial skills for the real world with GoHenry, the debit card and financial learning app for kids 6 to 18. Use it to check off chores, set savings goals, automate allowance, and more. Families love it. 92% of parents said their kids were more money confident after using the app. So get started at GoHenry.com. That's GoHenry.com and use the code E2. That's the promo code E2 for one month free. Again, GoHenry.com and get one month free with promo code E2. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed where we speak to all kinds of amazing founders and creators doing incredible things in business and beyond. In today's episode, I'm chatting with Steve Irvin, who's the founder and CEO of Integrate AI, a leading SaaS company focused on making the interactions between people and businesses more natural and profitable using artificial intelligence. Prior to founding Integrate, Steve was an executive at Facebook and Instagram, but also carries an impressive entrepreneurial background, having built two marketing tech companies prior to joining Facebook. In this one, we dive into the intersection of software and artificial intelligence, the importance of trust, compliance, and data privacy, company culture, and the notion of building a business with soul, raising capital and retaining talent in today's crazy venture market. Why being a not-so-techie founder of a tech company can be a serious advantage in today's landscape and way, way more. So with that intro out of the way, Let's get right to my conversation with Steve Irvin. How do you explain, integrate to a layperson or to your mom?
1: Yeah, when I explain it to my mom, you know, where I usually start is just what the future is that we want to see. So if you think about this whole movement of AI and machine learning, and if we if we look out into the future, we go and say, "What is AI and machine learning?" And at the end of the day, it's really software for the most part. I think we get obsessed with like robotics and putting like a body on it, but it's really more of the brain, right? like it's it's kind of the future of AI in a lot of ways is the future of software. and so if we if we think about like Mark Andreessen's whole essay around you know, software is eating the world, I think it's pretty clear to see that, you know it The future is really around AI eating software. And if we think about that being the future, you you go and say, like, what is it that we're missing from that moving a lot faster? Like, why isn't all software today kind of aided by machine learning? And it's just so much more intuitive and it works so much better. And the answer is that it's because it doesn't have the data. Like, it's really all about these algorithms don't work on their own. And that's what we set out to enable like our platform is really software that allows data sharing that's very specific to allow machine learning models to be more effective so if these ai systems are going to be great and are going to give you these results that you get on netflix when you come on or amazon and kind of you feel like they know you and they're giving you back things that you want that's not possible for most companies that don't sit on that amount of data so how can we democratize those capabilities such that any company can share in a privacy safe way patterns from the data that they have. And any company that wants to get into machine learning or or AI has an ability to to do that easily and not have to be Amazon or Google or or Facebook to be able to participate. And and that's the future that we're enabling. So we're we're basically democratizing access to, to machine learning and AI systems.
0: So you mentioned privacy, and that's a big piece for you guys, right? That's a big differentiator. You're the only company in the world to enable privacy, safe intelligence sharing. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it's, it's really the balance that needs to be struck. Like the, you know, when, when I was saying before around how do you solve for this kind of data challenge in machine learning, the way that it's being solved today, for the most part, like if you think about the data ecosystem that exists today, it's based on things that are really like surveillance tactics. Like you think about cookies and, you know, a lot of kind of how the internet has evolved and it's really kind of following people through the internet. And that's a lot of the data, like the rich contextual data that people use to be able to predict your actions, to be able to make recommendations to you on websites or or mobile apps. And I think as consumers, like as, as you and I are learning more about like how much data is being collected about us without our consent, in ways that we didn't even realize were happening, I I think we're getting more and more uncomfortable with that trade-off. And so a big part of of how we built the business from day one is to be able to try to find the right balance there, is to say, can we do things that can help AI systems work better? Like, can we find patterns that are common across companies that that just make the experience better, but not compromise individuals' privacy while doing that?
0: How does the underlying tech that integrate offers? How does it help here?
1: So the big thing that we like the vision for this company is really around embedding like positive human values into algorithmic decisions. I think like as we move to more algorithmic decisions, which is, you know, pretty inevitable, I think as as software kind of evolves, it's not implicit that those decisions are going to be great for people or that they're going to be taken in the same way that we naturally take decisions and, and socialize. And so one of the things that we're really focused on is to say, how do we start to use the power of software like ours to be able to understand bias that might be inherent in data, that might lead to people being treated unfairly, or that might lead to, to poor experiences for certain types of people, you know, which we don't want to repeat. But also, we have this kind of fundamental belief, and I hope most people share this, that Getting to know people, like truly serving people, like making sure that you deliver great experiences, trying to understand what consumers actually want and giving it to them is good business. Like, I find it ridiculous that there's this trade off that, that we've just come to accept. Like, if I want to be a business that operates at any scale, I have to manipulate people into doing what I want them to do as opposed to understanding what they want. And building my products and my services to be able to, to, to meet those needs that they have, and I and I feel like that balance is off. Let's get those things back in line. Like the great thing about machine learning and AI is it can pick up a lot of nuance in situations that today you have to you you can't pick up with traditional kind of deterministic software. And if we can pick it up, what are we listening for? Like, how can we listen empathetically to what people want and what they need and and try to meet those needs as opposed to, I got something to sell you, what can I learn about you that can help me manipulate you into buying what I want you to buy? It, It just seems backwards to us. And so we really want to make sure that we take this moment in time where there's a big shift that's happening in software, in the way that consumers and businesses are going to be interacting and go and try to reset the balance to more of like a mutual beneficial future (laughs) built on trust, as opposed to, you know, what could be a runaway train in terms of taking all this great technology and using it in a very one-sided way to reach short-term goals.
0: So you mentioned picking up data in a unique way, uh, and AI and machine learning does that differently than software has done in the past. So how does it do that? And how does it differ from, say, the way software has exploited PII or personally identifiable information?
1: yeah so I think I think that's the biggest change, right in In deterministic kind of rules based systems, uh, the focus needs to be legibility. You know, like I need to really understand and it needs to be very structured, the data that I'm dealing with. And so what we've done over time is we've we've defaulted to things like your identity in my system is defined by your age and you know like where you live and you know things that are really easy for me to be able to see and store and kind of segment in my systems and i think like that's been really important because the rules look for those things so the rule asks are you male or are you female and i need a response there and i i can't move forward without knowing and it and it's logic right it's very rigid logic in the future of machine learning, it's really more contextual. I can pick up patterns of behavior that, that aren't specific to you. Is just like, in this situation, people that behave in this way tend to prefer these things. And those things tend to be beneficial as patterns to be able to share across companies because they deliver better experiences and they don't come at the expense of following you individually around. They kind of like anonymize that and they go and say, it seems like from your behavior, you're frustrated or you're stuck. And these are ways that typically those kind of situations get unstuck so that the experience becomes better. So it's more about like, how do we improve the pattern matching in these models more so than like, how do I follow Adam through the internet and know that it's him with certainty in this situation? It's more like people like Adam that act in this way tend to like these things more than other things. It's a probability, right? And I'm trying to get that probability to be as accurate as possible without knowing it's you.
0: Based on what you're saying, like, how do you position yourselves? Are you horizontally positioned and which industries specifically understand the shift that is happening and are taking advantage of it?
1: So we are horizontal. We tend to work almost like as an embedded technology. So think of us almost like a Stripe or Square or Twilio, you know, working kind of behind the scenes to enable data platforms, you know, data warehouses, machine learning platforms. Where they already have a large number of customers, those customers are already doing machine learning, already doing analytics, and they need those models or, or, or those jobs to, to be done better. And what we do is we enable that network building, like we enable the sharing between those companies to be done in a privacy-safe way. And that tends to, to span pretty much any industry, although I will say that, that industries where privacy is more of a regulatory issue... So you think about like healthcare, financial services, we tend to have more of a prominent, like urgent need from more of the regulated industries. But, you know, in terms of how it performs, I would say it's pretty consistent across all industries.
0: Let's transition over to the origin story here. So let's rewind back four years plus, uh, right to the beginning of 2017. Yep. Prior to launching Integrate, you had a biz dev, call it corporate partnerships type of role at Facebook and Instagram. So, how do you go from that to being the founder CEO of an AI company?
1: Yeah, so I mean, my background previous to that was an entrepreneur. you know this is this is my third company that i've, I've founded and built in the, in the technology space. and so definitely feel like an entrepreneur at heart. you know the the six years that I spent at, at Facebook and Instagram was really my my only real job, I guess, outside of uh, founding, my, the only company that hired me. And it was a great experience for me because it, it, um, you know, we obviously in the time that I was there, you know, I joined when there was about, you know, maybe 1,500 people or something, still relatively small, a couple of years pre-IPO and got to see a lot of that kind of hyper growth um, scale and got to do a bunch of different roles there. And the one that you mentioned at the end, I was running our global partnerships teams for Facebook and Instagram. And It gave me this amazing purview of the kind of world. Like my team was in 22 offices around the world, all the big tech hubs. We got to see all the new startups that were starting up. You know, at the same time, I'm sitting in Silicon Valley at our head office. You know, every day we got big companies coming in with their executive team talking about their problems and their needs. And so you really get to see the world's kind of supply and demand on like, what are companies looking for? What are startups doing? Where are their gaps? And then the other thing that, that was really helpful for me is we had one of the most advanced AI research labs in the world. So it's almost like I got this crystal ball into the future around, like, where is the state of AI today? Like, what are the issues? What, what, what are we doing inside of Facebook that's working and not working? There's two areas that I spend a lot of time on thinking about, you know, when I would found a company. One is inevitabilities. Like I'm a big fan of looking into the future. I, I guess like any entrepreneur, you spend a lot of time kind of daydreaming about the future and w- what it's going to look like and, you know, what, what you imagine to be the, the important um, things that are going to change in the world. And I love this concept of inevitabilities, you know, like in the future, I think certain things are just going to be inevitable. Like you can think about like climate change that way, right? Like it's inevitable that we have to address climate change. And I felt the same way about AI, like it's inevitable that software is all moving over to machine learning or AI. It's just so much better, and it's gonna feel so much better. Software will be so much more useful for us if it was powered by AI. And I, I said, that's inevitable. I know that's gonna happen. And the unfair advantage I had is I said, and I know that the big rate limiter is going to be data. I got passionate about it because although it was an inevitable this technology change was gonna happen, it wasn't inevitable that that was gonna be good for us. You know, a lot of people you know, don't have any idea how much how much information is being collected on them and how it was being collected and how it was being used. I think machine learning has natural biases that could creep in through the data that not a lot of people understood. And so you could have people being treated poorly because there's not as much information on them. What do we need to do to enable a privacy safe network where people can share data, it could democratize these capabilities, and ultimately we can start to ensure that it's being done in a way that people trust and that can deliver mutually beneficial outcomes to people in and businesses. And, and that would be a thing that I'd care to spend the next five or 10 years of my life focused on and rally a company around people that saw the world the way that I did. You know, I moved back from, from you know, this executive job at one of these big tech companies in Silicon Valley and, you know, it's big news here and everybody's like, ah, oh, what are you doing back? Like, you know, somebody in your family's sick or like, you know, like you just want to, you know, like you want a Canadian living. And I was like, no, like I'm back because this is the best place in the world to build this business. If you look at the the rate at which companies are started, the ambition level of companies in the space now, the evolution of the ecosystem here, it's been really amazing to see and, and very excited to to play a part in it. So it's really kind of a cool part of our origin story, this ability to kind of get this view from Silicon Valley and actually learn that the best place is to come home and, and build this business in, in Canada, which I'm, I'm quite proud of.
0: It's one thing to have that vision, that ambition, uh, that forward-looking sort of entrepreneurial muscle that you want to flex and do it here in Canada. It's another thing, given your background, which, by the way, is is non-tech, really. You have a degree in communications and psychology. You are now at the helm of a AI company that you've just decided to launch in Toronto. So can you say more about what it's like being a non-technical founder and making that leap? And do you think that it's an advantage that you had in a weird way?
1: Yeah, I, I love this question. Um, because I feel like this is what I end up talking about the most. And, and, you know, something that I had to struggle through, like, I, you know, I was an entrepreneur, um, you know, back when it probably wasn't as romantic to be an entrepreneur, like when I first started my first company, you know, it it, it was lonely, and it was, it was brutal. And it wasn't like, um, as glamorous and as like romanticized as I think it is now, like, it hasn't gotten any easier. Like, I mean, maybe certain things have, like, you know, there's, there's more empathy. There's more people that want to support you. There's better infrastructure in place. But for the most part, it's still very lonely and difficult to be an entrepreneur. And, you know, the, the pendulum swings more to both sides. And I think that's true for any entrepreneur, regardless of background. But I think we've gotten, we've over-rotated um, to this fascination with the technical founder. And, and, and it's not that being a technical founder is not important. I mean, like, you know, you look at, we're building stuff. Right. So you have to have technical talent. Right. But this idea that unless you're an engineer or unless you're like a Ph.D. in machine learning, you can't build a great business in the technology space, I think is is just false. Like I I I think that what matters is that you identify a problem that is important to solve, that you can build a business around that, you can build a great product to solve that problem. And I think we've undervalued kind of this humanities background, like this, you know, we've overvalued the science and undervalued the, the kind of art. Um, and, you know, I look at these problems now, you know, and, and maybe this is just the exposure I had at Facebook, but I think people mislabel the nature of the problems that need to be solved in technology as technology problems. So as an example, Think about some of the bigger issues that have come up recently with bigger technology companies. Think think about Facebook as an example. A lot of heat around issues around, say, fake news or objectionable content, right? And it's like, these algorithms aren't working the way that they're supposed to work or people are injecting on stuff. These are not algorithmic problems. It's not like the algorithms aren't doing what they're supposed to do. The problem is, how do you define truth? Right in in a world where we're saying that there's a fake news problem, the question is an ethical and societal question. It's not a it's not a technology question. It's it's like how do we define truth? Like if you could tell the algorithm that, it would do it, and that requires more inclusivity, not exclusivity. It's not a bunch of engineers and and PhDs in physics that are going to go into a room and solve the future norms of what we want to do on the internet and how we want society to work and some of the ethical questions we're grappling with. That requires diversity, that requires different backgrounds, that requires people coming to the table. And, and even, you know, when you think about this AI revolution, you know, Jeffrey Hinton, godfather of kind of modern AI, you know, was here at University of Toronto, is, is seen, you know, won the Turing Award, is seen as like the 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 guy, right? Like one of the, the key pillars of this new movement in uh, machine learning and AI. He's not a computer scientist. He's he's got a background in cognitive psychology. He's a PhD in cognitive psychology, you know. And we see people from neuroscience, and we see people from you know philosophy and stuff getting involved. So I, I always valued my kind of psychology background because I feel like a lot of it is what I'm doing today. Like a lot of these questions are psychology questions. It's like how do we infer from what people, the way people are behaving what their needs might be, or how to treat them better, or how do we start to look across and, and apply concepts like empathy to a network of data and decision-making? And I think those are justifiable for people that, that don't have engineering backgrounds and stuff to, to weigh in on. And so, you know, if I had any thoughts to share with, like, younger entrepreneurs, like, I just want to make sure that, that young entrepreneurs that don't come from, you know, these, this prestigious school in like one of these one or two degrees, um, you know, because you didn't get accepted or you're not interested in coding, that somehow that limits you from a future of participating in technology or leading in technology. I, I actually think it's the total opposite. I think like you want to be zigging when everybody else is zagging. And I think that there's a real opportunity to differentiate yourself and see these problems through a very different lens if you come at it from a different background.
0: How old are your kids?
1: I've got a 12 uh, year old and a four year old, two daughters.
0: So, so how does this manifest in, in your own personal life? Like, do you believe liberal arts are undervalued? Are you bullish on, on degrees in liberal liberal arts? And if your kids sort of say to you, you know, dad, what do you think? Like, do, should I become a, a coder? Should I learn coding? Should I be a product developer, software engineer? I really want to study psych. I want to study philosophy, political science. What do you say?
1: I say do what, what you're drawn to. Like I, I, don't, I don't come at it with a, a very defined view of like, you know, you, you will only be successful in my eyes if you take a particular course or, like, you know, for me, if, if they don't decide to go to university, if you want to become an artist, if you want to, you know, do something totally different, it doesn't really matter to me. Like I, I think the parenting decisions that we've made, you know, my wife and I have been really largely around like what are the values we want to instill in our kids and hopefully they turn out to be good people and, you know, they... they care about the right things and what they end up doing for their profession. And, and you know, so long as that kind of is fulfilling for them and, and you know, is, is aligned to their strengths, then I, I think it's great. I think you can make any sort of a background work and, you know, I'd encourage them to, to follow whatever they're interested in. You know, entrepreneurs come in all different shapes and sizes, and I think we're starting to create an environment that's much more inclusive on that side. There's much more money out there to be able to build those businesses. So if you decide to be an entrepreneur, I don't think that's a rate limiter for you. And if you decide to pursue something else in life and you just want to do a job and go there and your passions are outside of your job, that's fair too.
0: Speaking of a lot more money, uh, being out there. You have had, um, some deep experience here in this regard. Integrate alone has raised nearly 50 million. What lessons can you share with those looking to build a VC backed company using capital obviously from reputable VCs.
1: Yeah, I think this is interesting. I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this one and I, I'm not sure if I, you know, have a set, I maintain a pretty, uh, flexible mindset here. I, I, I don't see raising a lot of money, um, as, as inherently good or bad. Like I, I think a lot of this has to do with market dynamics for me, like, If you decide to be a venture-backed company, which already is a decision, right? Like a a venture-backed company, you're deciding to grow fast, you know, like you're growing or dying if you're a venture-backed company, right? Because they need to have returns in a certain period of time. And that's the game you're playing with them. If you want to build a hobby business, lifestyle business, you shouldn't take venture money. And by the way, they're not going to give it to you. So like, it's probably not a consideration for you. And there's ways to raise money there and to build great businesses. And sometimes that's better for people. But if you want to be on the rocket ship of a venture-backed company, you got to pay close attention to the market. If the market requires you to grow faster, if the market moves faster than you think, you can't tell the market to stop, slow down while you get your stuff together. You know what I mean? Like you got to move at the pace of the market. And that sometimes means you got to raise a lot of money. That sometimes means you've got time and you want to stretch out your money a little bit and you could save more equity. Uh, Sometimes it it could be changed by a competitor. You know, you got a big competitor throwing a lot of money at the problem and they're capturing a lot of land and that's strategically valuable for you and you got to move faster. I think the key thing that I'd be looking at is just who are you getting the money from and how much time are you dedicating to raising money? Because the thing that a lot of entrepreneurs don't realize until you get into it is raising money is a full-time job. It's very distracting when you're trying to operate the business. And you want to keep those cycles as short as possible. So you want to run a really tight process, regardless of the amount you're raising. You want to run a really tight process so that you're spending as much time operating the business and growing um, and and minimal amount of time out there raising money. And you really need to pay attention to the person that's going to be joining your board or investing in your company. The firm matters. You, You know, you obviously don't want to go too far off and firms have reputations. But the person in the firm matters more than the firm. Can I trust this person to be there for us if we get a couple of bumps in the road? Or are they going to, like, not take our calls and be on to the next thing? And, you know, that's not the type of partner that we want with us. Um, So I think, you know, focusing on the person is important. And when it comes to raising money, it's it's a crazy environment right now. Like, you could go, like, we can go tomorrow and probably raise hundreds of millions of dollars. But just because you can get it doesn't mean you should. You know, once you make that commitment, you're committing to growing whatever valuation you get, whatever milestones you're setting, you're committing to like some stage of growth. And the more you take and the higher your valuation, the more that has to be balanced against the execution risk of of growing the company in the way that you need to. And so I think just because it's available doesn't mean you go and get it. But it, it has become an easier environment. I think like money is cheaper. You see more players coming down from kind of growth stage to early stage. You see more players coming from like hedge funds and public markets into growth stage. And so I think it, it is an optimal time to raise money and, and get good valuations. But I think it, it, it could be an unhelpful distraction and business killer if you're not at a stage where you can thoughtfully deploy the capital.
0: And given all the liquidity, which I know a lot of founders think is a good thing, the flip side of this is that it puts a hell of a lot of pressure on growth companies to retain talent with so much cash in the market.
1: It causes um, inflation salaries, which you know is good and bad. I mean like it, it becomes a little bit more challenging sometimes to like nail the market and where you want to be, and the market moves quickly and you know that's good for the talent because they have opportunity to make more money and that's great, but it could be challenging if you're not keeping track of where the market is moving and factoring in those costs effectively into the business. But I I think it's a slightly different question when it comes to retention. I think if you're only retaining people based on how much money you're paying them, especially as a startup, it's a bit of a dead-end road. You know, there are always going to be bigger technology companies with higher margins and better businesses that are going to be able to pay more, somebody who just raised more money, somebody who's willing to sign a bigger check. And I, I feel like that is a pretty tough retention strategy. Um, And and to be honest, this is like a lesson I've learned over multiple startups. When I built my first startup, I, I didn't understand what mattered in building a business and I didn't understand what mattered to people. I thought it was all about growth all the time. And, you know, it's, we had these, you know, it's about shipping product and selling stuff and everything else is a waste of time. At least what I've realized over time is. That stuff isn't why people join or stay at startups. You know, they, they join and stay at startups for two reasons. They care about the purpose. Like, they, they really care to solve the problem, or they care to make this impact on the world, and they want to do it with the group of people that you've assembled. And they're aligned in values. Like, the business has some soul that they're connected to, and they, they, they resonate with that. And, and the thing that I spend a ton of time on in this company And I think it's been our key to keeping the right people and hiring the right people is that we spend a ton of time up front on that stuff. Even if you look at our hiring process, you do two skills interviews and you do two values interviews and they're equally weighted. We do that not because we don't want diversity. We want a ton of diversity in the company, but we don't want any diversity as it relates to values. We want like full alignment on values. And it says, this is the way that the business is going to operate. And this combination of like purpose and values is like what I consider to be like the soul of the business. And if you buy in there, and that's what you're attracted to, and that's what you care about, that's what you're staying with. Like, it, it, it's worth much more than like a little bit of a raise here, or you could like negotiate a bit of a better salary there. Um, obviously, you got to pay people fairly, and you want to make sure that they feel like you've got a consistent philosophy. It's not like how much you negotiate this is what you're going to get, but you're consistent across the, the company, and, and you've got a way of doing comp. But I think, you know, for the most part, the right people in startups just care more about what you're working on. And that's going to go a lot further than this arms race on salaries and who can pay the most. Um, Now, I should say, it doesn't mean that people don't leave or it doesn't mean that people don't do a tour of duty with you, feel really good about it and move to another company. Like sometimes that's the right move for them. Like they've got a great opportunity and they should pursue it. So in a hot market like this, for sure, we feel more pressure. On the retention side, it's harder to get great talent to join the company, but the talent that you want and the way you want to be winning, I think is off that kind of soul of the company that they, they care about those things. And if you got those and it resonates, you know, I think the rest of it becomes details that you can sort through.
0: These are good points. And and Dan Pink has written a lot about this, right? What motivates people mastery to autonomy and three purpose, as you mentioned, is there anything more to say about building a business with soul here?
1: I think you got to live it. Like, you know, one of the things that we talk about a lot is it's easy to put stuff down on paper. Every company I talk to has got some values and they've, you know, they're, oh yeah, we got a mission. Like we got some values. You know, it's like, it's not hard to write some, some things on a piece of paper that look good. I think it's really hard to hold yourself accountable to making decisions in a consistent way in living those values. And if you do, it's kind of a weird paradoxical thing because. If you do, it actually makes the hard things in business easier. Like you get into a lot of sticky situations. But if you're very clear on your values, sometimes those gray situations, they're not as gray. It's pretty clear what you should do. And almost everybody in the company knows what to do. And so situations that in some companies become really contentious issues are actually the easiest ones to deal with if you can stick with your values and be consistent. It's defined by moments, you know, like you're going to get tested where there's real consequence to these decisions. There's like a decision between a short-term, you know, revenue opportunity and your mission. And you can't do both. Those are hard. Those take gumption and courage. Um, And, you know, I I, I think that's the harder part. I I think it's easy to kind of to get going on this journey, um, but it takes some real guts and fortitude to stay on it.
0: I want to come back to something you were talking about earlier, just to close the loop on it. You were saying two big pieces come into play with respect to launching a business, one being inevitabilities. What was that second piece?
1: Unfair advantages. I really feel like, you know, those two are the big ones for me. I mean, obviously, you got to you got to care about what you're doing. Like every time you get into something, you got to go and say, minimum, I'm going to be spending the next 10 years of my life doing this thing. Does that how do, how do I feel about that? do I get motivated by that? Am I passionate enough about this thing? Do I care enough about this problem? So I think we got to pass that hurdle. But once you're past there, to me, it's about, you know, what are these inevitabilities? Like, what are the big things that you just believe are inevitable? And then what are these unfair advantages? Like, is there something about that problem? Is it something, is there something about that kind of inevitable future that you can see that nobody else can see? I can make the assumption that other people are going to build the other tools that's required. Like people are going to build the infrastructure for machine learning. People are going to build the monitoring systems. People are going to build on top of cloud. You know, you could assume those things to be the case, and then you can build your business in the future ecosystem, you know, like, but they're going to be missing this piece. And that's going to be really important. And I can see what the piece was in a more established kind of high-tech that was missing and get ahead of that problem. I could also see that Facebook and Google and others were going to have a tough time solving this problem because of trust. And so most companies would look and go say, that's a massive, huge, but it's not a huge opportunity for a startup because Google or Amazon or somebody else is just going to take it. And I trying to work those deals and understand it from inside one of those companies could go there and say, "Eh, it's not going to be that easy. So it's likely to be a startup that pops up supported by those companies, but a startup that pops up that takes this space. Whereas a lot of people might say, ah, I'm not going to do it. Like, it's just going to close in on me. Why would I even bother? It's like, you know, it's not it's not a real opportunity for me. So that, those are kind of the things that I spend a lot of time thinking about as I think about a new venture. Because I, I feel if I don't have great answers for that, like if I don't feel really confident that this is a market that's going to move and I don't feel like I've got anything, any unfair advantage in doing it, there are a lot smarter people out there than me. You know, they're probably better people, a lot Better people building businesses and capitalizing op- opportunities, better technologists, and so you know that I don't I don't want to get into a race where I don't have an advantage. You know, I want I want to start with a head start, and then I just want to keep that lead all the way through. And so that that's kind of where I spent a bunch of time in, in making the decision to start the company.
0: Were there any key decisions related to lifestyle and choosing to come back to Toronto versus doing this in Silicon Valley? I mean, the the obvious answer for most, I think, is to just. Stay in California, build it there, um, go on that VC rocket ship, as you mentioned. Why come back?
1: So I started there. My initial hypothesis was, I'm going to stay in California. Like we had already moved, right? My family was down there. You know, my at that point we had one daughter; she was in school. We had kind of built some community there. You know, and so in a lot of ways, it, it was the default. It was easier to be able to kind of stay there. And now you're in Silicon Valley, right? So the default is like. This is probably right. (laughs) You know, it's technology. This is probably the place to start it. And as I dug in more, it it was almost like a a happy accident. You know, you kind of sit there and you go and say, of course, part of me is like, listen, my family, you know, my my extended family outside of my immediate family is is in Canada. It's in the the GTA. You know, like it, it becomes harder to stay connected to them. There's, you know, I love the country, Canada. Like there's a lot about it that I love. It's a great place to live. And so it it wasn't like I was escaping Canada. It was just kind of like an opportunistic thing. And I said, well, I'm going to start and be open to wherever it made sense to to be. And as I kind of went through the different criteria, like where is the talent that's accessible, that I can build in, that I want to build this business with? You know, as I'm talking to people, it's like, you know, you look at the head of the AI lab for Google and Facebook and Apple and Twitter, and they're all at like University of Toronto and their students are still sitting here and we're just starting to vector light, And I'm like whoa, like, this is amazing. Like the, the, the talent is actually best here and we're punching way above our weight. And then I thought about lifestyle. Like, where do I want to build a, um, a company where I can give people a great lifestyle, where I could live a great lifestyle, where, um, you know, we can, we can assemble a team, that first 50 people, that first 100 people that are going to beat anybody in the world. And it just turned out that like at the end of that, I said, oh my gosh, like it's Toronto. It made the decision easy in all the best ways, not because I had to explain it to people as like, you know, my wife really misses home or something. And that's why I'm back. But this is the place to be. And I stand behind it.
0: Building a business with soul. Steve, thanks so much for coming on the show. Integrate.ai. Where else can people connect with you?
1: Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter, you, uh, LinkedIn, or, you know, follow our blog on um, on Integrate. I'd say if you, if you sign up for a newsletter or blog, that's probably the best way to be able to to follow what's going on with the company. And if I got anything important to say, which, you know, is probably rarely, rare way, you, you can see me kind of splattering that out on Twitter and, and, and feel free to follow me there at Steve Irvin, I-R-V-I-N-E. Um, but really appreciate the time, Adam. Enjoyed the conversation.
0: Appreciate it, Steve. And to listeners, thanks for tuning in. That's it, guys, for today. Thanks so much for listening. E2 is brought to you by Scriberbase. Want to build recurring revenue for your business? Visit Scriberbase.com for more info. If you enjoy the show, download, share, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also visit us at glow.fm slash E2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on.